Welcome to the Anchored in Christ podcast. This is a place where we want to help young people draw closer to God and in doing so develop the confidence to take ownership of their journey, goals and purpose through biblical teachings and conversations. Our facilitator will be Ria Mudao and each episode she will be bringing you lessons on the Bible chapter by chapter from Genesis to Revelation. Our goal is to help you maintain or build your connection with God through His written word and to remind you of His character, His promises and your future together with Him. Thank you so much for pressing play today. Please don't forget to follow and share as this will help us grow our audience. Now let us begin. Welcome to this evening's Bible study. My name is Usani Lishamini, and I will be your host this evening. Um, what a wonderful time to be gathered here today as we are in the middle of the fast and we are wrapping up the book of Numbers. Uh, for those who are new and who are joining us for the first time today, please may all microphones and videos be switched off. If you do have a question, please don't hesitate to type it in the chat box. Your questions are more than welcome. And our facilitator, Uriya Mudao, will make sure that she gets to them. I'd like to hand over to Utando Sope, who will be leading us in prayer. Thank you, Sanil. Please may we bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for waking us up today. We thank you for the breath that fills our lungs. Lord, as we finish the book of Numbers, we ask that your Holy Spirit fills this place. May you reveal new things to us that we didn't know about you and your word. Thank you for your love and the peace that you bring to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you so much, Nobutando. Um, We have gone on a journey with the children of Israel from Genesis, and now we are here in Numbers, where we have seen them doubt God. We have seen them question Moses. We have seen them question so many things. And Uria has helped us um, to be able to navigate that journey. And I have no doubt that even today, she's going to help us navigate as we conclude the book of Numbers. And we are going to be going into Numbers chapter 25 to 30. Cecilia, I'd like to hand over to you. Thank you so much, Sanele Moraro, to everyone. Um, yes, we come a long way with numbers. I have gotten to love the book of numbers. Studying it this time was was a little bit different. I got to learn quite a lot of things. And I think what makes the book of numbers quite nice is that it's an easy read, right? It's stories. And we relate to those things because we go through things, we complain and this and that, and God comes back, punishes us there and there. And, you know, we get back you know, to the rails with him. But maybe before we even start, I looked at the time as well as the, the content. And I think we might not be able to get to Numbers chapter 36 because it ends at chapter 36. If we don't, we will probably get to Numbers 30 and the last session of Numbers will probably be um, lessons learned because it's a book that teaches us so much about ourselves as well as closing off the last six chapters. But getting on with it, we ended last week with Numbers 24, where we saw Balak and Balaam, the famous story of the donkey that speaks and stops Balaam from going. And that has been questioned so much. 
Uh, but but at the end of that story, what we get was God said, um, what I have blessed, no man can curse. What I have blessed, no man can curse. And no matter how hard Balak and Balaam tried to fight Israel, God refused. But the beautiful part um, of that story is at the bottom, like at the camp, the people were complaining. The people were complaining because that was the time where they were saying to Moses, we want uh, water and Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it and they want this and that. They were complaining at the bottom. God was punishing them at the bottom, but look at what he was doing because when you read that story, Balaam, yes, Balak was the king, Balaam was the prophet. Balaam was actually looking at them from the top of a mountain because they were in Moab so they could see the Israelite camps. But what is beautiful is most of the time, when we are going through things in life, we fail to see what God is doing, you know, behind the scenes because God was fighting a bigger battle where Moab was saying, curse these people and God was fighting a bigger battle. But because they couldn't see what God was complaining, they were what God was doing, they were complaining for the small little things while he was sorting out the big things. And I think that the learning for me there was, you know, if, if something is happening in your life and you do not understand what it means before you complain because you do not see what God is doing behind the scenes, play, pray for clarity. Pray for clarity. Pray for God to give you, you know, a way to see things the way he looks at them because he was looking at Israel that was being cursed and they were crying for water, you know, and small little things. So that is the learning. But we move on. Chapter 25. Um, they do it again, the Israelites. Um, so what you find in this book is we get to chapter 25. They are waiting. Uh, we don't know why the Israelites are, are, are waiting. The Bible says they were, they were sitting by Shittim. And it's, it's right just before they get to Moab. Um, and I'm sorry I don't have the map today. But if you can go back to the map, you will realize that they were waiting and sitting. And the Bible says that they waited and sit. And while they were sitting there, uh, Moab starts enticing them. Moab starts enticing them. And, and we know, we know that what happens in this story is most of the time when you read the book of Numbers, you find a lot of stories, you know, around they're doing this, they're doing that. But we know that the devil is fighting a bigger fight way above. And we saw it. I mean, chapter 22, I talked about 22, 23, and 24, where Balak and Balaam were fighting this thing. And when you get to chapter 25, they are resting um, and they are not moving. Um, and they are approached by a nation, by the Moabites. Remember, they are about to get to Moab. And I would read 25 verse 1 says, while Israel remained, while they remained in Shittim, the people began to play halot with the daughters of Moab, for they, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel remained, joined themselves to Baal, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And for me, the key principle is when the devil cannot deceive believers with lies that will just, he, he gives them things that will distract them. He could not deceive them at the higher level because God was fighting that fight. It was obvious that uh, Balaam, no matter how spiritually powerful he was, God said, you are not going to curse those people. And the devil was working a plan to say, all right, 
now I will face the people because their God is too powerful. And you see how um, when, when you become idle and, and you don't do much because they remained, they were supposed to be moving and going to the promised land. When you become idle, that is where, you know, um, the devil finds time to, to, you know, to entice you with certain things that will get you to where he wants you to go. They didn't know that the devil lost the battle with Balaam and they were thinking, all right, we're just chilling here by Moab. There's no fights, but the devil was working a plan to entice them. And they started worshiping the, the gods of the Moabites. And when you read, you know, the, 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 the Baal story is quite big in the Bible. We'll get to, to the book of Kings and they, they will still be having this problem of worshiping the gods of Baal and all this and all that. So the, the enemy planted an invitation because they were invited. When you read the scripture says they were invited and they agreed. Um, and, you know, they, they started worshiping the gods of Baal, which was a disgrace because God got very angry. And when you get to, to 4, 25 verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders and execute them. Those involved in the idol, idolatry, not the leaders in broad daylight, execute them in, in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his, his men who have joined themselves to Baal, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them. So God says, Moses, the only way in which you are going to deal, this, uh, deal with this, those people must be killed. And God's response was, they must be killed because they started bowing down to the gods of Moab. And that happened because they were not doing anything. So at times we feel like God is interrupting our lives so much. I mean, we go to a church that prays 12 times. You, you can't even have space to breathe. But when you read that, such stories, you understand why. Because when you're idle and you're not doing anything relating to God, that is when the, the devil finds space in your life to entice you with the small little things. And you end up losing the bigger picture because you are being enticed by the small little things. So don't hate those moments of interruptions because those are actually the moments of grace. Those are actually the moments of grace. And that story comes to an end where God says, kill them. Now, you can see that Israel had started disobeying God. And, and this is the thing, right? When you get to a point where you do not obey God and you are, not, you are no longer, um, I don't want us to be scared of God, like that fear, you know, that we're taught growing up. Obviously, we need to know that he's God, but we need to know that we have a relationship with him. But when you get to a point where that thing is not a big thing to you, you start disobeying even the things that you know God says this is a no-go area. Because what happens when you go down in chapter 8, a man by the name of Zimri, and I will summarize, he goes and gets a Moabite woman. And, and the Bible says that her name was Cosby, a daughter of the chief of the Median. He takes her and he goes to the temple. He goes to the temple to his family as well as to the priest and everyone. And he says, I came with a new woman. So this to Israel was, the tabernacle was a sacred place. The tabernacle was where Israel, God said to Moses, when you want to meet with me, you are going to come to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's dwelling. And he comes with, with a woman from, from Midian who is not supposed to marry. 
he is flaunting his disobedience. You know, he comes and says, guys, this is my new woman, you know, and he wants them to accept her. And God got angry because the, when we flaunt, when we disobey God in our small little corners, it is not okay, yes, but it is much better than, a dis, than disobeying God and flaunting it for everyone to see that, yeah, I am doing this. That, is, that makes God angry because now, you know, Paul, Paul when we read uh, Romans 1, verse, verse 29, you know, going down with it, he, he, got, he tells us that that is wrong. If you see someone doing something wrong, you do not then praise them for doing the wrong thing, especially when you know it is wrong. So what he did, he took a woman from, from the medians and he takes this woman and he goes to the temple and he goes and says, this is, this is my new woman in front of God. The Bible says that um, uh, a son who was, I would say, a grandson of Aaron. And don't forget, Aaron had died at this time because he died a few chapters back. I'm trying to get his name. Eliezer. Elie when Phineas, uh, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, saw that happening, the Bible said he stood up. He took a, a sword, he killed Zimri, as well as his median wife. And in that plague, there was another plague, guys. Again, um, 24,000 people died in that plague. And God said, um, they will be forgiven because, because Phineas, Phineas honored me enough to kill Zimri to show that I am against it. And from this, that's what you see, that, you know, we don't, you can be struggling with whatever you are struggling with um, because it's life. You can be struggling. But when you go out and start flaunting the disobedience, God was against the public display of disobedience. And he said, you bring her to, the, to your relatives, you bring her to, to the high priest, you bring her to Moses, you bring her to the congregation, and you bring her to the tabernacle where I sit. So this is not right. And that was the end of Zimri. And that is how chapter 20, uh five ends um with the death uh, but the plague which kills twenty four thousand people now when you move on to chapter 26 um god goes back and starts counting the people again if you remember when we started uh with numbers chapter one um they started god started by saying count those people he said to moses count those people i want you to get the number of the people that we have. Moses counted the people. It was not everyone that was counted. It was, it was only men that could fight, that could go into a battle. And so three things happen in chapter 26. The first thing is the counting of the people. God says, so from 26, one to 51, if you read it, I am proud of you because it's just names and names and names. But from one to 51, it is the people that were being counted. And this were the people that were going into the promised land. God said, Moses, go back and count the people. The second thing that happens, it's the distribution of the land. Because God had told Moses that this is the land. This is the promised land that I'm going to give to you. Now, this is how you are going to divide the land. Those people are not just going to go there and sit anyway. I mean, uh, I am going to divide it in certain ways. And the third thing was the Levite population. God said to Moses, you're not going to count them with everyone. But when you count the Levites, don't give them property. Don't give them land. Because what they will inherit will be my tabernacle. They inherited the temple. So these three events happen and you start seeing, you know, 
God forming a nation, the new nation that is going to go to Israel, to, to the promised land, I'm sorry. So the sons of Israel, when we start, when we read chapter 26 at the end of 51, somewhere there, it says they were 601,730. So it was 600,000 men that were, that were there that could fight. And this is when you read chapter 20, 26. But if you go back to compare with chapter one of, of numbers, they were 603, 550. So there's just a deficit of, you know, 1,800 odd day of people that could not, you know, of, of the number of men that, you know, we didn't go into the land. But you need to, you need to bear this in mind. Those people are new. Those people are new because when we started chapter 14, God said, only two people are going to go, Caleb, Joshua. The rest of them are not going to go to the promised land. The first thing that I see when I look at the numbers is the faithfulness of God. You know, God promised. God promised and said, you will go into the promised land. And when they started doing things that were against the word of God in the wilderness, God said, these people will not go, but the following generation will go. But just look at how accurate the number is. The plan was for 600,000 odd men to go into the promised land. And 600,000 odd men did go into the promised land, but they were entirely replaced. Only two people, only two people are going to go to the promised land that were there when they left Egypt. So these are actually the children and grandchildren of the original census, their parents and grandparents, they are gone and buried in the wilderness for 38 years. They were not doing what God wanted to do. And a lesson there is when God wants to do something or when God wants to feel, fulfill something in life, his plan is not stopped or does not become null and void just because I do not want to become a party. It doesn't. The promise stayed because the promise was given to Abraham. But because the people at that time were not willing to play along with God's rules, he said, it's fine. I will change the people and I will get new people to go into the promised land. So when, when you do things that's against the will of God, it does not change God's plan. It only he can wait for decades because 40 days became 40 years. And he got new people to go into the promised land. So he, he made sure that 600,000 men, odd men still go into the promised land. But it was not the people that were there at the beginning, the people that were meant to go there. So immediately after the census, God says to, and this is from 52, after the census, God says to Moses, divide the land geographically. And this is how the tribes are going to get the land. When you get to 26 verse 52, and I hope you're reading with me, um, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, among this, sorry, among this, the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To the larger group, you shall increase their inheritance. To the smaller group, you shall diminish their inheritance. Each shall be given their inheritance according to those who were numbered of them. But the land shall be divided by lot. Um, so they cast lots. They cast lots to divide the land. They shall receive their inheritance according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the selection by lot, their inheritance shall be divided between the larger and the smaller. So it was, uh, it was uh, you know, when we talk about lots, uh, um, it goes all the way to the New Testament. 
even when after Judas had 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 um, left the twelve disciples, they still followed this this type of making a selection because they still cast, they cast lots to get the right person. That will be a replacement of Judas. So this this is something that Israel use they use, and we know that the stones that Aaron was given when we read the uniform that was given in the book of Leviticus, there were stones. He used to cast lots using those stones, the twelve stones that he was given. So they used this to allocate the land. But this must have been very exciting, because these are people that have been traveling for forty years. And we are not only talking about the 40 years, these people were slaves. So even in Egypt, they have never owned anything. Even in Egypt, they were just slaves in Egypt. They knew they were not Egyptians, but they stayed there because they were given a place to stay. But this should have been a very exciting moment for the children of Israel. It's sad that the people that saw the, the slavery in Goshen could not be the same people to see this, but their kids should have been very, very excited because it, it comes to a time where God says, it took time, yes, but I will deliver because I promised. And as you go on, I did say the third thing that happened happens in chapter 26 is the counting of the Levites. Um, if I was Moses, <laughs> I think I would have felt a little bit sad because what happens is God gives um, the, all the children of Israel land and he allocates, and I, I mean, Moses is doing this with the high priest. He allocates the land, but then God says, um, when it comes to the Levites, you do not give them any land. They will inherit the tabernacle. So what they did, so the Levites, and you will see as we go to the end of Numbers, they were in all the nations of Israel, like your Dan, your Asias, your Reuben, your Simeon, all those, those children of Israel, there was a piece of land that was allocated to the Levites. And if you look at, if you look at the lesson behind it, the Levites were responsible for worship. The Levites were responsible for worship. And bear in mind, God knew how big these people were going to be as a nation. They were still seeing themselves as a family. Our grandfather is, our mother is. But God knew that these people are going to spread out. They are going to spread out, but in, in whatever city that they go to they must have a levite that will be responsible for worship so god it made it look like they were not given the the beautiful things of this world but if you think about it god was saying in whatever city that you're going to inherit you must have a levite by your corner someone that will atone for your sin someone that will help you someone that will remind you to go to the tabernacle someone that will Watch out for all these things that will be happening. And you will see when we read the book of Judges, it will help. It will help that they had the Levites in the small corners because when they stopped doing what God wanted them to do, there was a Levite that will rise because the Levites were allocated. But if you go back, and I'm not going to go there, if you go back to the prophecy when Jacob um, was blessing his 12 sons, the prophecy that he gave to Levi. The prophecy that he gave to Levi was, you are going to be scattered. You are going to be scattered throughout Israel. You are not going to stay like with your family. That was the blessing or the prophecy that Levi got. And it didn't make sense when we study in Genesis. But when we come to the book of Numbers, that prophecy comes to life because God comes back and says, Levi, you guys are not going to inherit anything. 
We are going to count you, yes, but you are going to be scattered. You are going to be scattered amongst the children of Israel so that worship is always there at whatever point. And when you read um, from 61, actually 26 verse 61, Nadab and Abihu, those are the ones that died. Remember in the temple, in the tabernacle, they did something wrong. They died. But those that were numbered, Levites that were numbered, were 23,000. And those were males that could do the work because it was not everyone that was counted. Other people were not counted, but the males were 23,000 Levites that were going into the, that were going into the city. And as you move on, um, sorry, I think Sanele. All right, thanks. Um, so I, I did say Moses was doing this, so it must have been very hard <laughs> for him to be giving land and everything to everyone else except his own people um, because they did not get the land. But the chief idea, as I said, it was to spread out the Levitical families among the population and have them act as priests wherever these people were living. But when you look closely at the end, um, 64, 26, verse 64. Uh, but among these people was not a man, uh, a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest who numbered the sons of Israel um, in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, they shall surely die. You know, God reminds them that amongst this, he said, among this 600 people, 600,000 people and everyone that we're counting, there is no man that was counted that was there when everything happened and for the Lord had said to them, they, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them except Caleb, Caleb and Joshua, because God has promised. And that's how we end um, chapter 26, the second census. But the biggest learning is the faithfulness of God and how God will never, um, you know, throw away or let go of his plan just because I don't want to be a party to it. He will make an alternative plan. And when we get to chapter 27, chapter 27 is actually a flow from chapter 26, right? Because chapter 26, we read, count them, count families, do this, do that. And this is how those people are going to be allocated land. Now, they was a family. They was a family. Most women that um, go into look for you know there's not a lot of women that you find in the bible right that are brave or that go and preach the word but this ladies uh the daughters of zelefo had i always i always struggle forgive me these daughters uh these were five daughters um they were born of a man that did not have a son so the allocation of land it was linked to a man the ladies could not inherit on their own it was linked to a man. So these this ladies actually uh, went to Moses, approached Moses and said, we did not get an allocation. We were not allocated any land, but it's just because our father did not have a, uh, our father did not have a son. And when you read 27 verse one, the, da the daughters of Zelophehad stood before Moses, stood before Moses and before Eliezer, the priest, before the leaders 
and all the congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting saying, our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be, with, be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give us a position among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before God. So Moses had a case and I did say, you see this a lot in the book of Numbers, it's case studies where God gave them laws that this is how it must be done. But when it's applied practically, it, you know, it leaves victims and, and Moses would find these things and go back. Now Moses, he goes back to the Lord. Um, then the Lord spoke to Moses um, and listen to what God says. The daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. And that is God. They are right in their statement. You, should, you shall surely give them a possession among their father's brothers. And you shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Further, you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brother. If he has no brother, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. Those that studied law of, of uh, succession can see where uh, Roman law gets this whole thing of who gets first. But they were actually saying to God, to Moses, we did not get land, but we didn't do anything wrong. The only fault here is that our father did not have a son. And God agrees with them. God agrees with them. This was a case of, of I would say, unfairness because the census neglected some of the people that were, that were not identified by the law. So when the law was put in place, it left out some people, not intentionally, but these are some of the things that come up, you're dealing with these people and they bring you a valid case. And that's how we build the law, right? Precedence of, okay, this is how we're going to do it going forward. Um, and, you know, the, the legal mechanisms, they, they don't replace relationships. When, when people don't engage each other, they don't really understand each other. If Moses, if Moses was not willing to listen to the children of, to the daughters of Zeleofa, if he was not listening, willing to listen to them, he was not, get to, he was not going to get the, the side of the story. And he was not going to know that whatever he's doing is wrong because God said they're right, actually. They did nothing wrong. So it's easy for us, um, it's easy for us to get so caught up in our own world that sometimes we don't even see, recognize how, you know, um, um, these problems are affecting other people around us as well. So my mark this as a blind spot. I know that there's a lot of questions when you study. There's a lot of questions. Did God make a mistake? Did this, that? Did he not know that this was ha will happen and whatnot? But I don't think it's about that. I think it's about um, the sensitivity, the sensitivity, because it was not that someone intended wrong. It was not that someone intended wrong, but it's wrong happened and God was saying let's relook the whole thing and see how can we cater you know for these five daughters that have a valid story so we must learn we must learn to be both careful about doing right but not to become insensitive to other people in the process and say this is the law and you know get into the detail and understand what they're saying if it means going to God going back to God and say God this is a slightly different case 
how do we deal with this? And not just say, but this is how it's supposed to be done because it becomes a blind spot because God then comes back and says, but they are right. So, you know, sometimes we, we had people even when we don't know that we're doing so, but we always have to go back to God to get clarity, to get clarity, especially when you, you're having such instances. And when you go to um, the end of chapter 27, um, you find Moses. I think Moses has made peace that he's not going to go into the promised land. 27 verse 12 to 23, uh, Moses starts asking God and saying to God, um, these people need a leader. They need a leader. I know that I'm not going to be there. And when you read from 15, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all the flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be left like sheep which have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eliezer, the high priest and before the congregation and commission him in their side. So Moses realizes that time is going and God has told me in chapter 14 that I'm not, I, in chapter 20, sorry, that I'm not going to go into the promised land because I struck the rock instead of speaking to it. But, you know, this is a leader. This is a leader that is so sure that God is going to do what he promised, but he's worried because he knows these people. Moses traveled with those people. Um, you know, he grew with them. He knows how, how weak they can be. He knows how troublesome they can be. And he probably knows that they can't just go by themselves. They probably will not get there. And he goes to God and he presented to God, you know, the case that I need a person that is going to be my predecessor because I, I am going, I need a successor here. And God says, Moses, look at Joshua. He already has a spirit, has the spirit. And I mean, this is a, a call, you know, and, and I know that churches do it differently, but it is a call for, for churches or organizations under the body of Christ to identify the people that have the spirit that will take on certain roles. I'm, you know, I, I do a lot of risk at work. And the biggest thing is, you know, if you are working, how are you going to de-risk yourself? If you are to fall and die today, what is going to happen to those people? And it applies. It applies everywhere else that, you know, you need to de-risk. If I do this thing so well, if I worship so well, if I read the Bible so well, and that is in the temple, that is in the church, if I do this so well, if I drop dead tomorrow, what is going to happen? So that calls you to start mentoring the young people that are coming before you and identifying, strengthening them, you know, and making sure that their path is right so that when it's your time to move forward or to move out, there is someone that is going to take over and help with the work of God because the work of the Lord must go on. And that, that's what Moses was saying, that I probably will not be there. I know that I will not be there, but the children of Israel must still go. So God appoints someone. And that's how we end chapters 20. 27. Well, chapter 28 and 29, it is very, I call it uh, the holidays, um, you know, where, where God said to Moses, 
Um, you know, God, God was, is very organized. He knew that they're about to go into the promised land. Um, and he starts saying to Moses, Moses, there are festivals. Uh, there are functions or holidays that I want uh, for these people. Now, the Hebrew scriptures, when, when you read Hebrew scriptures, which is the Torah or, or the books of Moses, Genesis, to the book of, of Deuteronomy, um, you find seven holidays that God gives to the people. Seven holidays that God gives to the people. And they also had daily offerings. So it was a law. It was a law. And when you read through chapters 28 and 29, you will see God will say daily, daily, the light must keep on shining. The light must keep on shining in the tabernacle. Daily, they must offer this type of offerings. But they were, they were certain types of holidays that God gave to the people. And, and there were seven. There were seven holidays. The obvious one for Israel, we know, it was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath. And God said, every week, every week, the Sabbath is mine. The Sabbath is mine. I want them to come back to the Sabbath every week and they must worship me. And we know that we get the rules of the Sabbath all the way. So many books from the book of, of, of Exodus 20 starts talking about the Sabbath. When you read Leviticus 23, Leviticus 27, and you get to the book of Numbers, it continues talking about the Sabbath. So the first holiday, he said, is the Sabbath. And every day, every week, I want you to come to the, to the temple on the Sabbath. Um, and I will go to the other festivals because we know the Sabbath, we studied the Sabbath. Um, the other festival, festivals, the other six, it's festivals that we know by name, right? Because if I say Passover, we all know others call it Pasiga. You know, it's got different names. Others call it the Nisan because the, the Hebrew people and the Jewish people call it the Nisan. So Passover um, was actually, so every holiday that God gave to them, it had a history attached to it. It was not a, I'm just going to give them this holiday. There was history attached to every holiday. So Passover comes from Exodus 12, when God said every Israelite must take blood and put it on their doors so that when the angel of death comes and he finds blood on your door, he will pass over and he will not kill the firstborn child of that family. And Passover was not uh, for, for specific, it was, there are Egyptians that were saved by Passover, by the way, when you study the text around the time, and there are Israelites that died. So it was only dependent on the blood. It was only dependent on the blood. What I needed was just to take the blood and follow the rules because there was the rule, you kill a lamb. If you don't have a lamb, you share it with your neighbor. You do all those things. There, were, there was a lot of rules around Passover. So it was for one day, but they were remembering they were remembering the angel of death that passed over and saved them. And we know that Christ gives it a good, a new meaning for us because he then talks about us celebrating Passover in a new way where we remember his death, where we, the, they killed the lambs in their houses that day, but the lamb, which is Christ, died and we take, we take his, his blood and we put it on our doors every time that we go and partake in the Passover. And this is what, what happened. So the mark of the blood marked the holiday of, of Passover and they used to do it once a month. Once a month, God said that at the beginning of the month, the first day you will have Passover and you will remember that you were slaves in Egypt and I saved you. The next holiday was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread actually follows Passover. So for, for those that go to church with me, this is where the rule of eight days comes from. Because God said, so, so eight days actually takes two Jewish festivals. It's take the Passover, takes, Passover is one day, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days, and it gives eight, eight holy, holy days. So what happens is they had Passover, and for the next seven days, God said they will also, um, following Passover, they will be remembering that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, which is in the book of Exodus 12, verse 17. So for seven days, for seven days, they will eat bread with no leaven or yeast, as we call it today. Um, and, and they called it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we also find it in the book of Leviticus, by the way, Leviticus um, 23, verse 6, where God explains the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in this way, God was saying they must remember. So if you read Exodus 12, you will, or those that remember, you know, the bread, the bread did not have leaven, but it was because of the condition. They were running, they couldn't wait for the yeast and the bread to rise. And the, the bread that they took when they left Egypt while running, it, it was unleavened bread. And God said, you will remember that time. But what is key? What is key is the spiritual meaning behind this. Because when you move, from what happened in, in Egypt and you read you know, scriptures like Nehemiah, you start finding that leaven to God, it was, it was something that they came with. It was something that they took from Egypt. It was something that they took from Egypt and they were, they were moving with it into the wilderness. And God started saying, you, you are now mixing this thing of yours that you took from Egypt with the holy thing that I'm giving to you. So it was, a, it was an ingredient that brought corruption. It was an ingredient that brought corruption because this was the yeast that they came with out of Egypt. They did not have all these things in the wilderness. So in this way, God was saying, Egypt is corrupting or influencing the new thing that I'm trying to do because now you are, you are doing this, but you're taking all those things that you took out of Egypt and you're mixing with what I'm giving to you, which is new. And God was saying, let go of Egypt. Let go of your slavery. Let go of whatever Egypt gave to you because now you're going to travel with me and you are going to use what I say you must use. So Passover, which is day one, it is about God's provision where God said, I will give to you a lamb that will die on your behalf. And for them, it was, I will give to you, um, you will be saved that day. It was God's provision. He saved Israel that day. So it's sort of justification the way, you know, the theologians call it, but it was God saving Israel. But unleavened bread, which is the seventh day post the Passover, it is the intentional removing of corrupt influences in our lives, which makes us forget God. So Passover is about God you gave. But the, the feast of unleavened bread is that because you gave, now I will do works. I will remove all the leaven around me. I will remove the yeast. I will remove the corruption so that I can be a usable, a usable, usable, a vessel of God and I'm free of all those things so God told them get rid of everything that you got because now you've been saved and that is where the eight days come from so the one was what God gave and the seven 
was what we gave back and we cleaned everything out, everything that we got out of Egypt. And when you go to the third holiday, it was actually uh, called the holiday of first fruits. So first fruit was, um, it was a holiday that God gave to them. You will find it when you read um, Leviticus 23 as well as Le Leviticus um, 13. And, but in today's language, I will call it payday because after the harvesting and everything, God said the first fruit before the full harvest, the first fruit you used to take it and you give it to God. A percentage of it, the tenth, the tithe, you used to take it and you would give it to God. And so that's why I call it, it's, it's payday because for us, it's the money that we earned from the work that we do. But for a farmer, if you think of it their way, for a farmer, uh, the harvest is the beginning of payday. You know, the hours of planting, watering, waiting, the labor, all that. That was a very, it was a, a, a good time in Israel because that was when God said, when you, before you go into your harvest, when you get your first fruits, you take a percentage of your first fruit and you bring it to me. But what, what I find uh, very interesting about the first fruit. When we read uh, the holiday of, of unleavened bread, leaven was corruption and it was not allowed. But when God gives them the feast of first fruit, he says to them, on the feast of first fruit, bake bread with leaven or yeast. Bake two loaves with leaven or yeast and it must be on a Sunday. So this is one of the holidays where God, it was not calculated by months and whatnot. It was the first Sunday. Bake bread and have that bread. So it was celebrated with bread that had yeast. They ate proper bread this time. And, and, and you know, there's questions around, leaven is corruption. Why does God take us back to that? But if, if you read scriptures like John 20, and you read um, scriptures like First Corinthians, where Paul explains how we come in. This actually was an introduction, was the introduction of us. Because this is where, if you look at what happened with, with the, the, first, the feast of first fruit, it was the resurrection. Because if you study the, the timeline, the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, it marks the timelines by the holidays. So if you don't know, you will just think, but what is Matthew talking about? It was a feast, it was Pentecost, it was, it was all these festivals that they had, but they were allowed to have yeast. But when you start reading Corinthians, book like Corinthians, you understand that this was when God was introducing us. We were excluded from this equation. We were excluded from the Jewish equation. But in that, in the Old Testament, God already gave them a law that included the ones that were not allowed, the, the people that you're not allowed to bring in, the resurrection. We know what it did for us because it was on the Sunday, the resurrection, and God said, allow them to become a part of it. And that is where we were introduced in this feast of, of um, first fruit. And the next one, looking at the time, is Pentecost. Most of us know it. Pentecost is also known as um, the festival of weeks, um, but it is, they celebrated getting to Mount, Mount Sinai because this was 50 days. This was 50 days after they were saved. And God said to them, when you get to Mount Sinai, take a vow. They took a vow that day after taking a vow, 
God said to Moses, come, come up. And Moses went up and he got the Ten Commandments. So they when they celebrate Pentecost, when Christ says, when, when they got the Holy Spirit and it was on the day of Pentecost, it was on the day where they were actually celebrating um, the receiving of the law. So it actually, it actually cancels each other out. It, it actually cancels out because on when they got to Mount Sinai, they got the law, which excluded everyone. But when we come to Pentecost and the receiving of the Holy Spirit that we read about in Acts 2, that is where we are now included. So with all these holidays, the more you study the holidays as a Christian, then you get to understand that we were part of God's greater plan. We were part of God's greater plan. So they were people that were not allowed, but there were certain instances where God would say, this festival, you are going to have leavened bread. And only when everything became clearer in the New Testament and Christ resurrected, then it made sense why, Christ, why God said you can have leaven. Then it makes sense why God said you can do this because now we know what it means. So those were actually called the spring festivals. And they had a festival called the Day of Trumpet. The Day of Trumpets, it was God saying to them, remember the days that you were in the wilderness, what they would do, they would go out. They still do it today. They go out, out of their beautiful houses and they would go and live in the tents. And they say, you know, when you listen to the Jewish people talking about uh, the festival of, of tabernacles, um, it is so interesting how they say that for them, that festival actually reminds them of how faithful God is, how faithful God has has always been because even today he's still a faithful God. And then we have the famous one, the Day of Atonement. We know about the Day of Atonement because that was the one where um, God said to them, um, you will be forgiven your sins. This one does not exist to us this day because uh, we know Christ died on the cross, but we don't have to take for granted the work of the blood because when you get to Hebrews 9, Hebrews explains it very well that this was a law which was given to them and they had to kill. But now we have been covered by the blood of Christ, but it doesn't make it null and void. It, we still have to think of, of you know, what Christ went through um, when he saved us. So all these holidays, for me, I would say the learning out of all this is God does not want a fling. God wants a relationship. He wants a relationship and he wants to do it every day. God does not want to be a painkiller where I have a headache and I remember him. He wants to do life with me. God's love language is your time. You cannot just say, God, I love you. And you don't give him your time. A way to show him that, God, I love you. You give him your time. You give him your life. So his love, love language is here I am. This is what I'm giving to you to show you that I love you. So as much as the law was something that um, all these holidays, as much as we don't follow them diligently and all that, because most of them have a meaning that is linked to the Hebrews and, and how God would say to them, this you must do this way. As long as, as much as we, we're not expected to go out and have tabernacles outside to remember how faithful God is. But it is, it is the principle here that we are studying. It is the principle of, who is God and what does he want? He wants time. He wants time. He wants your time so much that uh, you do not have much of a choice if you want to build a relationship with him. And we'll close off with chapter 30. 
which is the vows. And, you know, when God speaks about the, the vows, he says to Moses, um, he said, Moses said to the heads of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to, or, or to, to do something, to make a pledge, he must not break his word. He must do everything as he said he would. And God says to them, um, you know, whatever, whatever that you say you do, you must. And we know that when Christ comes, you know, he, he says, he, he says, we must walk away from making, you know, set, taking oaths and doing all those things, especially when the fulfillment of that oath will be at an expense of another person. We must walk away. But there are times, like when we give our lives to God, it is, it is a vow that you say, I am coming before you. Uh, when, when you take time out to fast and pray, it is a separation. It's like a Nazarite vow, which you take out and say, God, I am coming to you. But here's the standard of the vow. Keep your word. Keep your word. Don't look for thousands of justifications or paperwork to see how you can rescue yourself from keep, keeping the promise of God. When you say you will do something, let that word be life. It must be life. If you said you'll do it, do it. Keep what you promised. Keep what you promised. If you signed up for it, do it. Christ, you know, he rebukes against doing such things. But if you're in a position where you have to do it, keep your words because there is power. There is power that comes from a tongue. And I think we will close it there uh, with chapter 30. Um, we, we are going to take a break next week. Uh, because we'll be attending a spiritual conference. But when we come back, we'll have a session where we close the last six chapters of Numbers, um, as well as talk about the learnings that we get from the book of Numbers. Um, in, in our normal conversation way, uh, we will do that as we close the book. Thank you so much. Back to you, Sanele. Thank you so much, Cecilia, for that wonderful session. I think if there's one thing or one lesson that we should all take with us as we continue our fast is that God wants our time. The best way that we can show God that we love him is by giving him our time. And I hope that this is a word that we will all hold on to as we continue with the fast. I know that this week is going to be very difficult, but if we just give God our time and we pray and we give it all to God, we should all be okay. again for this wonderful session. I'd like to hand over to Utando to just please close us in prayer. May we please bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a thoughtful God that you are. We cannot comprehend it most of the time, but we thank you that you are always in control and that you see the bigger picture. Father, as we enter this week, may you clothe us in your strength and your grace. May you continue to sustain us in our fast and may we see great things in Klangan I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.